Uh, thank you, worship team. Really appreciate you guys. Well, welcome. This morning you found us in part three of a four-part series called I've Been Thinking. And what's behind this series is this idea that we all have been thinking at some stage in our lives about some pretty big questions. Uh, some of those questions, if you've grown up in church, you've thought about and just pushed aside and you've kept coming to church because your parents have or your siblings have or your, your close friends have, but you've never really resolved them. Others have uh, thought about them and these questions have kept them from being in church or even following Christ or knowing about who God is because they don't have a good answer to the questions and you know people like that. And my belief is that Christianity, because it asks so much of you and offers so much to you, is worth asking any question that you can imagine to it. In other words, it can handle the weight of what you can ask. It can handle the weight of any doubt, any critique, or any push that you have on it in any particular way. And so what we're trying to do for four Sundays is raise some of those questions to the fore and say, let's talk about some of the most pressing issues or questions that we have all had at some point or the other that we've thought about, wondered about, and just maybe for some of us pushed them to the back burner and others have kind of pushed them to the fore and we've kind of been hesitant to really engage for one reason or another because we haven't really resolved a few big, big things. So week one was actually Easter Sunday and we asked the question, did Jesus really die and come back to life? I mean, the resurrection is so big that if that isn't true, then nothing else in Christianity is. I'm going to say that again because I think it's important. If the resurrection isn't true, then nothing else in Christianity is. The Apostle Paul said that if, if Christ has not been raised, your sins are futile. Your, or, or, excuse me, your faith is futile. You're still in your sins. That we're to be pitied above all other people if the resurrection isn't true. Two weeks ago, I tried to make the case on week one in Easter that the resurrection is the most attested to event in ancient history. Not in modern history, but in ancient history. That of all the events that we believe are true and have accounts written about them, that the resurrection is the most attested to, even outside of Christian interest, just even in secular interest, the event and all that surrounds it is the most attested to event in ancient history. If you don't believe that or you want to push on that, I, I get that. Go back and listen two weeks ago. Go online, listen to our messages of two weeks ago because that will help you at least understand why I believe that. That message to me is so important because everything else comes off of that. Everything else comes off of the resurrection because if there was a man who walked the planet who told me or told you that he's going to die and in three days he's going to come back to life and he actually does it, I will listen to him. You? If that is true, you talk about what authority do you have to lead? What authority do you have to answer the biggest of life's problems? If you can solve the unsolvable mystery of death and you can beat death, you tell me what you have to say. And I'm, I'm all ears. Two weeks ago, excuse me, last week we asked the question, is Jesus really the only way to God? Because in our, the mood of the culture in which we're in now, the mood of a postmodern culture says, listen, that is ancient, that is old school, that is so non-inclusive, you can't go there. And we talked about the power of mood, how it has the power to crush reason under the weight of feeling. And it can feel like, as I said in the 
the message last week. Sometimes you look in the mirror and you're like, hey, do these jeans make me look fat? And yeah, do these jeans make me look fat? And the answer is actually no. You just are in a bad mood and the way you feel changes your mood and you think you look fat in your jeans, but you really, really don't. That mood and feeling can, can break reason up because reason says, no, you actually don't look fat, but you can feel it even if it's not true. And so the way that we feel about is Jesus the only way is very important. The mood of our culture says there's no one thing that can be the only way except for Jesus. Because he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me, I tend to line up with what somebody says who can die and come back to life, which is kind of what I, what I tend to do. This week is going to be tough for us. All right, let, me, let me just preface it this way. This week we're talking about this issue of how can there be a good God with all the bad things that happen in the world around us? How can there be a good God with all the bad stuff that happens? It's a question that is probably the um, most common question that people who have walked away from the faith or been hesitant to embrace and love God ask and answer at some point in their life. Because it is a difficult question, isn't it? It doesn't take long to go online, to read the paper, to, to open up the app on your phone, to get news about the world. And rarely, rarely, rarely do you, do you see the evening news start in with a story about how all the, you know, something great that's happening in the world. Hey, welcome to NBC Nightly News. We just want to tell you there's a lot of great things happening in the world. There's, there's nothing to worry about because everything's under control. You know, rarely do you go online and you, you check out your news page, whatever that might be, and read, you know, things going really well in the Middle East this week. You know, nothing wrong in, in, uh, in the world of police shootings this week, right? You know, nothing wrong in terrorism this week. Everybody's getting along and had a big birthday party. I mean, it, it doesn't take long for us to see the problem of pain, evil, and suffering in the world. And we have to ask the question, can Christians really say that a God exists and that that God is good in the middle of the world in which we live. Can we really do that? Right, and that's the big question. I want you to know that we are not the only people who have wrestled with this question. And I, I want to this morning lay out to you in just the few moments that I have um, some biblical uh, people who have struggled with this issue, and then I want to talk about it, and then I want to take you to one passage, and then I want to make a comment about that. So we're going to move on this, and it's nearly impossible to wrap it all up in the time that I have, but I, I want to give you something this morning that I think will be helpful. First of all, I want you to know that the feelings we have about um, the, the difficulty of pain and suffering is not new in our world, and that, in fact, some... Um, Psalmist, David, excuse me, in Psalm chapter 40, he wrote this, and see if you can relate. He said, troubles without number surround me. My sins have overtaken me and I cannot see. They are more than the hairs of my head and my heart fails within me. Have you ever felt that way? Even just the first phrase, troubles without number surround me. Have you ever felt that? Like everywhere you turn, there's a problem. From the news to your personal finances to things at work to your marriage to your kids to, to your future to your health. to what, It just seems like you're constantly getting bad news. Are there not seasons of life where we just feel that way? Troubles without numbers surround me. It's like, man, if this is all there is, why is it so hard and why am I even here? And then to add on to that, 
My sins have overtaken me. Have you ever felt that way? That not only are things going wrong out there, but things are going wrong in here. Like, I can't even trust myself. I let myself down. I fall into sin. I fall into temptation. No one else knows this, and now I have to privately bear the burden and the weight of my own sin and failure. Have you ever felt like I have that same way before? And this is what David is writing. My sins have overtaken me. I cannot see the feeling of being unable to have clarity of vision of how you walk through life because of the weight of all that's wrong in the world. There are more than the hairs on my head. That's not a very good analogy. And my heart fails within me. This feeling of, man, it just, I don't have the heart to go anymore. I don't have the oomph to give it another day, another try, because it's so heavy. Have you ever felt that or part of that? And this is what David lays out for us in Psalm chapter 40, verse 12. What you have felt is not unusual. Jeremiah writes very well in Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 18. He says, Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? Those are powerful, powerful words. Why is my pain unending and my wound grievous and incurable? In other words, I don't have any hope. I don't have any hope that this wound will be healed. It's incurable. How do I deal with this? Over in uh, Romans Paul is writing about the world in general, not just about people and our interaction with the world, but the world in general. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Meaning that not only do I feel this way and do we feel this way, but it's almost like he's painting a picture of the world and saying the world feels like you do. Like the groaning and the creaking and the earthquakes that happen and the push against you know, tectonic plates or however you say that word, tectonic plates, whatever, you know what I'm saying, in the, in the world. There's this groaning and creaking of the, the changing of seasons and tidal movements and melting of this and that and stuff that doesn't seem quite right. And it's like it's groaning against all this and it's as if creation is saying we're not quite right in the world. And you wonder, how can there be a good God in the middle of all this? I want to give credit this morning to um, uh, C.S. Lewis, by the way, and let me recommend to you, if you have never read uh, the book called The Problem of Pain by C.S. Lewis. If you've never read that, um, put on your big boy pants and read it. All right. it, it is a, uh, a harder read than, um, you know, than, than picking up a, uh, a fiction novel, but it is a good and worthwhile read from C.S. Lewis, The Problem of Pain, and be ready to go through that slowly and in, enjoy what he has to say about that. But here he frames up the question that we all ask this way, and it's this. If God were good, he would wish to make his creatures perfectly happy. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do what he wished. But the creatures are not happy, therefore God lacks either goodness or power or both. Got that? If God were good, here's our assumption, then he would wish that his creatures were perfectly happy. Doesn't that make sense in our world? Isn't that what a grandparent would want? That their grandchildren are perfectly happy and content. And if God were almighty, he would be able to do it. If he wishes it were to be so, he is, is he not omnipotent? Is he not able to do as he wishes? And if he is, then what gives? But the creatures are not happy, correct? Correct. The creatures are not happy. Therefore, God lacks either goodness or power or both. Therefore, because of the problem of pain and suffering and evil in the world, either God is not good or he's not all-powerful or worse yet, 
both are not true. That he's neither good nor all-powerful. And this is the problem of evil in the world. How do we deal with this? Great, great question to ask. Let me begin this way. I have a, <clears throat> excuse me, a couple of thoughts to throw at you. Number one, we have a <clears throat> limited ability, don't we, to understand what is good, don't we? We have a limited ability to understand what is good. And, and let me um, preface this uh, from here on out by saying this. There are, there are two um, approaches to dealing with the problem of evil in the world. One is an intellectual approach and one is an emotional approach. And this is very important to clarify at the beginning. Very important to clarify. There's an intellectual problem of evil in which we can talk about that removed from the current pain of dealing with any kind of crisis. And we can just talk about it at an intellectual level. And we should. But then there is the emotional level of pain in which you are currently dealing with some kind of crisis or have recently dealt with the pain of the world. And that, for you, the intellectual answers are rarely satisfying, and yet at some point you need those answers. At some point you need both the intellectual answer and you need an emotional response. Because the intellectual answer, the question is this, is there a God... Is there a God in the middle of a world that is hard? And the, and the emotional response is, if I believe there is a God, can I serve a God who doesn't seem to be good? Can I serve a God who allows this level of pain? That's an emotional question, and rightly so. And so this morning, I want to answer both. I want to deal with both the intellectual problem of pain and suffering and the emotional problem of pain and suffering. They're both in play, and we cycle through both of them, even in the middle of pain and suffering. I want to give you an, an illustration from the animal kingdom for a minute. Uh, many of you know that we own a dog, a little border collie named Riley. And Riley is an interesting little animal. We let her out this morning by William and me. I actually did something positive for the dog, just so you know. And I went out and I let the dog out early this morning. Um, and border collies evidently are smart animals, I guess, you know, one of the smarter breeds of dogs. I've said before, I'm a dog owner, not a dog lover. There's a difference between the two. The primary difference is I don't put clothes on my dog. Okay, that's the, that's the biggest difference, all right? Uh, but we care for the dog, and I don't abuse the dog. I enjoy playing with the dog, so just to clear that up, I'm not trying to kill the animal or hurt it or anything like that. I play with it, enjoy it, all right? Fair enough. So here's the deal. Uh, take two dogs, one dog that is... Um, in a home, and one dog that is going to be domesticated, and the other dog that's going to be a wild dog. So you have a dog that needs to be housebroken, then you have another dog that is not going to be housebroken. The dog that is going to be housebroken over here needs to be taught the rules of the home, right? And needs to sometimes be corrected, if not regularly be corrected, especially early on. Needs to sometimes get a stern warning from mom or dad, all right, from owner of the dog, all right, to, hey, this is not right, and get a firm, like, hold the snout, look in the eyes, kind of let me know that I'm in charge and you are not, you know, this kind of moment. Sometimes even a whack on the nose or a, whatever you do, your newspaper, you know, tap on the bottom. I don't know what you do with your dog, but there are times in the dog's life, to, in order to be domesticated, you have to be corrected, Right? You've got to correct the dog, and you've got to do it early and regularly and consistently, and then the dog will get it, hopefully. The wild dog over here does not have any of those problems at all. There's no one in authority over that dog, and they don't have to deal with the problem of the pain of the owner doing that. They don't ever have to be corrected, and they get to do what they will. 
Now the question becomes, if you get in the dog's mind over here, and in the moment of being corrected or having your snout grabbed and having some big person that you can't even talk to, right, looking down at you, yelling at you, or being firm with you, whatever that is, let me ask you the question, is that good? If you were a dog, and in that moment I asked you, is that good? And I think because you're a dog, and I'm a dog in this moment, I would probably say, no, I don't consider this good. Like, this moment isn't good. I don't have a bigger picture. This is not good. But we, because we're smarter than dogs and we know better, we would say actually that is a good thing, that is a good moment, and we would also know this, that the pain that is inflicted on that dog emotionally, or even slightly physically, is good for the dog, right? Because which dog will live a healthier and better life, domesticated dog or wild dog? And we know that the life that is better for this dog is the domesticated dog. But we also know this, that in order to become domesticated, you have to go through pain to get there. But you will live longer and be healthier than your counterpart who does not have to go through pain. And that belies a very, very important principle to understand when it comes to pain and a very difficult principle for us to get. And here it is, that in order for us In order for us to understand pain, we've got to understand this principle. To desire to have a pain-free life is to desire to be loved less. To desire a pain-free life is to desire to be loved less by your Creator. This little dog over here, to desire to be living a pain-free life is to desire that the owner not care that it live a healthy life. And in the course of growing up and learning to be domesticated, the dog must go through pain in order to learn what is good. The principle extrapolates further. The times in your life when you have most been shaped and changed and grown have most likely been times of pain and difficulty. And to desire a pain-free life is truly to desire to be loved less by our God, not more. We don't often think of it that way, but a very, very important principle for us to understand. We don't have the full picture of what goodness really is. Now let me take this other issue. Is God good and can he allow pain and suffering? I believe yes. Is God all-powerful and can he allow pain and suffering? In other words, have things just spun out of control and God is out of control of it all? Um, Let me give to you a quote from um, a 13th century Catholic monk. They call him a friar, Catholic friar, but we often think of deep frying things, so this is not what he did, but F-R-I-A-R. All right, um, named Aquinas. And when I put it up here, you, if you're like me, will have no idea what he's saying. It took me about five times to understand this, but it's pretty simple, and I think I can explain it well enough to understand it. Here's what he said. Nothing which implies contradiction falls under the omnipotence of God. Nothing which implies contradiction falls under the omnipotence of God. Now, when I read that, I'm like, that's really good. I'm totally confused. No idea what you're saying. It took me about five times to process what you're saying. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Uh, let me explain it and illustrate it. In other words, what he's saying is that God has created a natural world, and in that, things that are contradictory to one another do not change the omnipotence of God. So, you have a flower outside of your kitchen window that you, when you wake up in the morning and brew your morning coffee, you look out and you take delight from the flower that's outside of your kitchen window. I 
realize that. I know that. I live near you, and I see that beautiful flower that stands out beyond any other in the neighborhood, and it brings joy to you. And I wish that I could have that flower in my yard. That flower, not one like it, not a one of the same nature. I want that flower. So here's what we know. It is impossible for that flower to be in two places at one time. It would be contradictory to say that that flower can be both outside your kitchen window at 6.30 in the morning when you get up and brew your coffee and at the same moment be outside of my window three blocks away at 6.30 in the morning when I brew my morning coffee. It is contradictory to say that. There can be a similar flower, but not the exact same one bringing me joy and delight. Every now and then God does a miracle, and perhaps he could reproduce a flower that would look very similar to your flower in front of my yard, but it wouldn't be the same flower. You would still have your flower, and then I would have a duplicate of that flower over here. When God made humanity, he made humanity with a free will. When you make humanity with a free will, you can also not make humanity with a not free will. If you have a free will, you have a free will. You can't not have a free will. So with my free will, if I'm made in the image of God, and I go by your house, I drive by your house, and I get tired of that flower bringing you joy and not me, and I go by and I cut your flower, and I take it back to my place. I now have your flower. And out of my free will, I have taken your flower to bring joy to my life, and I have caused you evil and harm by taking away your beautiful flower. Is God still omnipotent? Is God still all-powerful? Yes. Because he's created creatures with a free will, he is still in charge of it all. My decision out of my free will does not change the omnipotence of God. I have caused you harm, but the harm is not because God cannot stop that harm. It's because he has created people with a free will will, and when he does that, he can't also then create people without a free will. And so it's contradictory to think that I can be a person who is both free in my will and not free in my will at the same time. And if I'm free in my will, I can choose where my soul meets yours to hurt you and offend you because this is how God has made us. And it doesn't speak to his omnipotence, it speaks to his creation that he has made us this way. When we read the papers, when we see the news in the world, is it not true that the vast majority of the pain that we experience is two souls clashing amongst themselves, two people running into each other, two ideals hitting each other? That the violence we see in the Middle East is a matter of people on people, harm, pain. Is it not true that even the ferry that capsized, I believe it was early this morning, on the way from Libya to Italy in the Mediterranean Sea, several hundred people we believe have died? Not a result of a natural disaster, but because people wanting to flee a regime or a, a government system in Libya that isn't working, wanting to find freedom in Italy, and they die. Why? Not because of some kind of natural disaster, but because they're, they're reacting to what has been done to them. That The vast majority of pain and suffering in this world is because we do things to one another as people who are made free and in God's image. We're made free to do that. Therefore, God is still omnipotent, but he has made us to be free to do that. Very important principle. At the same time, there are some things like natural disasters or even sickness that is not a result of my behavior. Right? There are times when we experience pain because of health concerns or because of a, a tsunami or something that actually has nothing to do with my behavior and what I do. And so what of that? Let me just speak to that for a moment. 
in the book of Revelation, chapter 4, verses, verse 11, here's what we read. That you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. You are worthy, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. This is a verse that I, I showed to you because of this. The world and all that is in it is about God and not about me. Because he created it, he's the point and not me. If I created it, I'm the point, not him. But if he creates it, all worth, power, and glory go to him. And I think we understand that at a big picture level, but here's where that plays out. That even in processing a tsunami, for example, or processing a health concern, the first point is not, God, you need to explain yourself to me, but rather taking the position of, okay, all glory, honor, and worth in this world goes to the one who made it, and that is, first of all, God, not me. I don't deserve an explanation, as hard as that might be to process for us. I don't deserve an explanation because I'm not the point of the world. Now, at an emotional level, you may respond to that and say, I don't know if I can serve a God like that. That's an emotional response. I get that. That's fair. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But at a response of, can there still be a good God who is sovereign over all? Yes. And he doesn't need to respond to all of us with the answers for why he does what he does. But we still need to deal with the emotional piece, and let's deal with that. When we think about the emotional response to pain uh, and suffering, it's a uh, little bit more challenging. It gets a little bit more complicated because that's really where we all are, um, and that is, can I serve a God who allows evil? Um, if we could, we would all get away from evil. We'd all get away from suffering. We'd all prefer that. Um, Lewis, in his book, The Problem of Pain, he said it this way, you would like to know how I behave when I'm experiencing pain, not writing books about it. Now, you need not guess, for I will tell you I'm a great coward appreciate his forthrightness. He said, if I knew any way of escape, I would crawl through sewers to find it. Isn't that true? That if, I, that if we could figure out a way to get away from pain and suffering, we would crawl through sewers to find it. We, if we want to get away from pain and suffering this badly, why would God, who is a benevolent God, why would he not feel that empathy and care for us and deliver us from that pain? And can I serve a God who isn't going to do that for me on a regular basis? That's a fair question. It's a fair question. Uh, let me just give a little bit of perspective, and I want to take you to a, to a passage in Scripture to provide some perspective. Uh, coming back to this whole idea of how much can we really know, um, let me take you for briefly for, to, a, to a, uh, a developing field of study in science called chaos theory. Chaos theory is essentially the study of macro movements or macro organisms, macro things that happen. For example, um, I remember asking one of you who is a, a farmer not too long ago, who sets the price of milk? Uh, for those of you who are in the dairy business, you got a little smirk on your face immediately because you know how complicated the question, that simple question is. You know, what sets milk prices? And the answer comes, you know, then, boy, well, let's talk about that for a little while, right? I mean, there's some emotion wrapped up in that baby, all right? And it's complicated, isn't it? It's a complicated answer. Let me ask you this. What determines the stock market rise and fall? That's a pretty complicated answer, too. There's a lot of things. Let me ask you this one, too. Like, what, uh, what determines weather systems and forecasts that come? What, what determines when a hurricane is developed and when it's not? You know, we all know that a, a three-day forecast is more reliable than the 14-day forecast because we expect that people can't forecast that far out. Why not? We do some pretty smart things as people. We, we land like 
spaceships on moving rocks in the outer space. You know. We're able to create technology to, to get our faces beamed to the other side of the world in a moment, to shoot images from here to satellite down to the other part of the world. Why can't we tell like 10 days out what's going to happen to the weather? Is that too big an ask? And yet we know we can't. That's strange. Chaos theory acknowledges that there are so many things that go on in macro-organisms like a stock market, like the weather, that determining the reason why or all of the elements of what goes into a big movement like that is very, very, very difficult. And so uh, chaos theorists will say this, um, that the flapping of the wings of a butterfly on the, on, on, in the plains of Africa may contribute to a hurricane being developed later in the season across the planet. And you think, what? What in the world? In other words, that may set in motion a chain of events that builds from one to the other, 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 to develop in just the right way, in just the right time, in just the right direction, in just the right, just, that all builds up to a hurricane forming in the Atlantic Ocean. In life, is it not possible, and is it not true, that for the pain that we experience, that our pain can be like the butterfly flapping in the wings, flapping of the wings. That seeing it, if you're there in Africa and you see the butterfly flapping, you would never think, hey, in six months there's going to be a hurricane you know, in the Atlantic Ocean. Is it not possible and is it not helpful to see that the pain that we experience is like a, a, a pain that gets dropped into the, the annals of time and perhaps centuries later on a continent other than this, with people that have never even walked the face of the earth yet, there becomes a response to the pain that we've experienced here and now that has built and that we can't even see. For example, the martyrs of the faith, the stories of your grandparents and great-grandparents, who even today have shaped how you've made decisions because of the pain or suffering that they have dealt with. Have you not taken inspiration from people who centuries ago that you have never met have dealt with pain and suffering in a way that you could never have imagined? And I guarantee you that in that moment when they were dealing with the pain and suffering in the concentration camp in Vietnam or in the, the, um, the arena and the Colosseum in, in, um, in Greece, that in those moments, those martyrs of the faith were not thinking, boy, you know what, I bet, you know, 150 years from now, 2,000 years from now, there are going to be people that really get a lesson out of this. But has it not been true that your life has been shaped by the response of people throughout history to pain and suffering? Uh, is it not possible that this is how pain and suffering can work? In other words, I do not have a full enough perspective to see it all. There was a man who dealt with a ton of pain and suffering, and you, you know him in the Bible, and uh, his name is Job. And I'd like you to turn there to that passage with me, because it's so profound, I think, what Job has to say. If you have a Bible, I invite you to turn to Job chapter 42. If you don't have a Bible with you, there's one near you. Uh, the book of Psalms is kind of the middle of the Bible, and then you can back up one book to Job. Uh, and I'll, I'm going to go pretty, pretty quickly here through Job, because he says something that is very, very insightful. Uh, that to me puts all of this in perspective. You know Job's story. If you don't, here's the, the quick skinny Job. Uh, lost his family, his career, his money. He was one of the, the wealthiest men in the world at the time. His children died, were taken from him. His career was taken. His reputation was taken from him. Um, his wife told him to curse God and die. 
uh, and he was kind of left uh, on his own. And then he got boils that covered him from head to toe, and uh, he was sick. So he dealt with just about all of the pain and suffering that you can imagine uh, in the world. Not all of it, not all of it, but he dealt with a lot of it. What he does is he has friends who come in and give him bad advice, and then Job ends up grumbling uh, toward the end of that, and I, I hard, hardly blame the guy. I certainly would as well. And then after a while in the book of Job, um, late, late 30s of the book, Job chapter 30-ish, 34, 35, um, God shows up and responds to Job. And basically God stands up to Job and he says, uh, Who is this that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Excuse me, would you like to stand up and, uh, and brace yourself like a man and get ready to have a conversation? Were you around when I laid the foundations of the earth? Who was it that told the oceans where to stop? Could you tell me, who was it that set the sun and the moon in place? If you're ready to have that conversation, let's talk. Who is it that darkens my counsel with words without knowledge? Are you aware of the, the foot of the mountain goat that travels up the way? Because I am. I mean, are you? Because when you are, then let's come back, and then we'll have a peer-to-peer conversation. Until then, get ready. And so here's Job's response to being put in his place with his pain and suffering. Job chapter 42 and verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord in response to this, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. And you asked, who is it that obscures my counsel without knowledge? And surely I spoke of things that I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. And you said, listen now, and I will speak, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. And then he makes a statement. He makes a statement in verse 5 that is so incredible to me, that if you are are dealing with this reality of pain and suffering, and let me tell you, and you know this, if you are not dealing now, you will be. I'm not trying to be a pessimist. This is life. This is the world in which we're in. And he makes a statement, my ears had heard of you, but now, now my eyes have seen you. My ears had heard of you, but now, now my eyes have seen you. In other words, I used to hear about your power, now I've seen it. I used to hear that you were a God who, yes, set everything in place, but now I've seen you. I heard that you did those things, but now I've seen you. And let me ask you, under what conditions did Job move from hearing to seeing? And it was, it was through the pain. It was through the pain. It was through the hurt. And it was through the hardness that God took away all, as, as C.S. Lewis will say, took away all the toys of life that we lean into. He took away all the toys, all the stuff, and said, I'm taking this from you and leaving you with nothing. And Job complains, I don't have my toys, I don't have my stuff that I depend on, I don't have my stuff that gives me identity. And God is saying, hey, let's stand up and talk like a man when you're ready. Where were you when I? And Job, after a while, says, whoa, you're right, you're right. I'd heard of you, I'd heard of you before, but now... Now I've seen you. Now I have seen you. And I'm telling you that to wish for a pain-free life is to wish to be loved less by God. 
to wish that life did not correct, change, hurt, even damage us, is to say, God, I want to be wild and free on my own. When I read in the New Testament that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that he sent his son, Christ Jesus, to die for us while we were still in our sin. When I read that verse that you all know, John 3.16, for God so, what? Loved, for God so loved the world that he sent his son to have a picnic with humanity that all could enjoy sitting together and having a picnic under the sun. God so loved the world that he gave his only son to go through incredible pain and difficulty. God, his love for us is so much different than our love for one another. I don't know if you've ever processed that. My love for you and your love for me is mixed with my own self-interest. Even my love for my wife is mixed with my own self-interest. What I get out of loving her is mixed in there. God doesn't have that with us. His is a one-way kind of love. His is a love that says, I don't need from you, but I want to give to you, so let me come to you and love you as you are. And so as we deal with pain and the emotional toil and toll of pain, it is easy to say that this God must not be loving who has caused or allowed this hurt and pain. And I get that. But I also want you to know that this is a God who is loving, and in the course of love, pain happens. To wish for a pain-free life is to wish to be loved less. Lewis wrapped it up well, I think, in The Problem of Pain when he said this. I have nothing to offer my readers except my conviction that when pain is to be born, a little courage helps more than much knowledge. A little human sympathy more than much courage. And the least touch of the love of God more than all. That if pain is to be born by you, a little courage helps more than knowledge. That is a little, a little fight to say, okay, this is harder than I expected. A little courage helps more than knowledge. But even more than courage, a little sympathy from people around you who love you. A little sympathy. We're in this journey together with a painful walk of life. A little sympathy helps even more than your own courage. And, and most of all, most of all, just even a little touch of the love of God helps even more. And when I come back to see what God has done with us through Jesus Christ and say, God so loved this world that he put his son in a position of pain and difficulty for us, I'm amazed that there are times when I hear of God, but through pain and suffering and when stuff is pulled away from me and my toys are taken from me, I've heard of him and now I see him. And if you are in that place now where pain, struggle, difficulty is, is really present for you. I hope that Job's words can be a soothing balm to you. That in the middle of all the pain, the middle of all the hurt, in the middle of all the stuff, no longer have I just heard. Now I see. Now I see. And the pain can be a loving touch from a God who actually loves and cares for us. What I'd like to do this morning as we wrap up in prayer, as we typically do, is I'd like you um, to be able to offer maybe even just this little bit of sympathy to one another. I'd, I'd like us to be able to, as a, as a people who walk together in pain and suffering together, uh, just encourage one another with our presence. And so as I pray to, to close, 
if you're near somebody, you know, friend, spouse, you know, whatever, relation, friend, and you know they're just processing something, you know, they're dealing with something at a deeper level. Uh, you don't need to make a big move or, you know, stand up and go somewhere, but I would just encourage you to reach your hand over. Lay your hand on someone near you. Put your arm around somebody this morning as we pray together. Just as a reminder that a little sympathy helps even more than courage. And a little touch of the love of God helps even more. That we can serve and love and care for one another, even as we pray. And so as I pray, I just invite you to do that. To be near to those around you. And in the touch, in the nearness, in the closeness, that you can in a way be a touch of the care and the love of God. Even in the middle of the pain that is very, very difficult for us to understand. Let's pray together. Our good God and Father, we are men and women who deal with pain and difficulty in very profound ways, in very difficult ways. And if we're honest, we wish, we wish that we could just clear out this world from all the stuff that happens. We just wish we could do that. And yet we know we can't. And so if we're honest, we also wrestle with, is this a God good whom we serve and whom we love and whom we claim to be God? And I pray that you would remind us this morning, Father, of our perspective, our position before you. And in that, remind us not only that you know more and see more and are able to, to see beyond this world that we're in, but also remind us how much you do love us, how much you know us, how much you care for us, that there is nothing that we deal with that you are unaware of. So, Father, I pray that you would not only give us courage to face the pain that we face, not only give us a little sympathy from the friends around us, but also give us a little touch of your love. Help us to see that even in the middle of the, the pain and the hurt and the difficulty, that it's in these moments, in the middle of them, when we not just hear you, but we begin to see you when all else is stripped away. Help us to see that pain, even in itself, can be very loving as it draws us to what we're made for, to know you, to love you, and to serve you. Father, I pray for us this morning that we would be men and women of courage to see that you are God who loves us all the time, in every stage of life, even when things seem most gray, even when, like the psalmist in Psalm 42 writes, that things seem so crazy, my heart fails within me, and I just want to give up. When Jeremiah writes that my wound seems grievous and incurable, I've given up. Even in the middle of all that, Father, remind us that you love us, and you have come to us to walk this journey with us. We thank you for your love and your care for us. We pray this in Jesus' name.